research um, in, on the Church of the Christ and the restoration movement um, everybody, as well as the archivist for the Church of the Christ Heritage Collection. And um, I just want to uh, say that uh, we have a good staff here at, in the Special Collections at Pepperdine Library. And um, some of those um, librarians are really instrumental in preparing this digital material that we're going to use in the
beginning of the book that would show you what the author of the book looks like so you could see who you're reading. If you were a consumer of the biography of, of Barton Stone published just after his death, this is from 1847, you would have been able to see an image of Barton Stone. And there are, again, there are no photographs of Barton Stone and, and very few images, but this is kind of the iconic image of Barton Stone. 1847, we then, so he's the stone, the stone Campbell movement, and then there's Alexander Campbell. Uh, this is actually a photograph of Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell's father. This is from the collections of the Disciples Historical Society in Nashville. It's about four inches tall by about three inches wide on glass. It is um, remarkable. It's just, it's simply remarkable. Thomas Campbell, author of the Declaration of Address, architect of the Campbell Movement, sits for this portrait, this photograph, I believe in 1853, and he dies in 1854, February of 1854, I think So this, this image was taken less than a year before his death, when photography itself was very young. This is, I think, the basis for that very characteristic image that you see of Thomas Campbell if you were to, to read and consume Alexander Campbell's biography of his father. It, it contains a, a, an engraving in the front of the book, I believe, based off this one image, maybe the only image uh, that was taken of, of an elderly Thomas Campbell just months before he died. It's certainly one of the, one of the oldest images of the pioneers. Again, if you think images as a, as a means of, of learning what, what someone looks like. Now, this is a photograph of an oil painting. This is Alexander Campbell. As he sat for an oil portrait in Nashville in the 1830s on one of his visits, this oil portrait was the property of Talbert and Charlotte Fanning, who lived in Nashville. This oil portrait survives the war, the Civil War, by being hidden in a, in a barn, and then after the war, they bring it out and they discover it, and then this cabinet card, which is about six by nine or so, or a four by seven, uh, was made. I believe Ira Collins was, I think he even preached some in uh, Alabama and elsewhere. He owned a photography studio. He makes a cabinet card photograph of the oil portrait of Alexander Campbell and then makes that available in the 1880s. But this is, again, you, you think photography is so ubiquitous today. What, how would you know what Alexander Campbell looked like um, in, if you lived in the 1850s? You might not know what he looked like if you lived in the 1850s. Uh, the, the, the Fannings were close personal friends of Alexander Campbell and he, he comes to town, he sits for the oil portrait. So if you had the means to have an oil portrait made of your friends or your loved ones, then you could kind of see them when they weren't there. You know, we put pictures on the wall, we have pictures on our phone, so we can see people when they're not present to us. Um, but if you were a reader of Alexander Campbell's works, if anyone in the audience wants to chime in, jump in, Gary, jump in, John Mark, jump in. Uh, I'm not aware of any book from Campbell's life prior to the 1844 debate with N.L. Weiss that contains an image 
of Alexander Campbell. In other words, like the Barton Stone biography of 1847, where you can open up the front of the book and see what Barton Stone looks like, I'm not aware of anything comparable for Campbell other than the Campbell Rice debate. And this gives you an engraving of Rice and an engraving of Campbell, so you could see them. Now, this is not quite photography, but it's an image. And in the infancy of photography, it's close. This may be iconic. I don't know if anyone has seen this before. This is Alexander Campbell inside his study at Bethany. Anyone been to Bethany? Anyone made the pilgrimage? Okay, you've been in the study, or you've walked around and you've peeked in the back. There he is in the study. The study lit from above with the addition on the back that had windows in the side. But very close, light from above, surrounded by his books as bishop in his study. That's a great image. Probably a Campbell in the 1850s. You can just imagine he's at the height of his influence, at the height of his writing, in his uh, laboratory with his books surrounding him, looking very much at home. That's a great image. I don't know if you have seen something similar, but we put pictures of folks we admire up on the wall, and we can admire them as we see them. Okay, I don't know if you've seen something like this in your preacher's library. I don't know if you preachers have something similar. Okay, in the 1880s, you could um, order this print and frame it and hang it on your wall when you study. I don't know. We folks may put these in churches, but you could you could have an image of the big four. Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, and Walter Scott. Yeah. You want to bring them? Yeah, um, it's interesting, you know, Tom, whoa, I'll get that. Uh, Tom Albright, I hear you probably wrote, was really um, kind of disturbed by the fact that we call it the Stone Campbell movement when he thought Walter Scott was kind of the popularizer of, of the ideas of Campbell and Stone and both Campbells. So it's good to have a picture recognizing the four when the name doesn't recognize the four. Uh, and historians can debate whether Scott really should be a part of the four or not. I mean, that, that's part of the discussion to have. But notice that the, the motto that's inscribed there where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. You can see how prominent that motto has become with um, right here. With this, uh, and then right there. Yeah. It kind of curves around the bottom of Thomas and the top of Alexander. And as far as we know, as far as I can tell, let me put my own research, that motto was not operative before the Civil War in any significant way. Uh, it's mentioned like in the 1840s. Um, do we know the date of this? I believe this is 1885. Yeah. If you go to the Library of Congress website, you can download a high-res version of this, which is where I got this image. You can take it to Kinko's and get a poster size made. Maybe that would help you what, speak where the Bible speaks. And the yeah, it'll help Bible you with the motto, right? right. Okay, but the, but now back to you. Yeah, but the motto doesn't really become a standard motto then function as a motto until the 1870s and 1880s. And, and so it's, it's interesting, it's almost anachronistic to put that motto in this picture because none of them ever talked about it except maybe one time in the 1840s 
And of course, the motto comes from a supposed statement that Thomas Campbell made at a meeting where they were talking about the Declaration and Address. And someone said, hey, you know, if we do that, you know, infant baptism's out the window. And Campbell is supposedly to have said, we're going to speak where the scriptures speak and be silent when the scriptures are silent. But it's interesting, he never wrote those words anyway. So we gave that motto a significance that maybe even the original uh, founders uh, didn't give it that much significance. But, but you see how important it is by being engraved here. Yeah, again, it, it, the, the idea here is this artifact, this image, this portrait, this uh, artwork. Um, are we getting into Campbellite icon iconography here? Where <laughs> it conveys what we, what we believe, what we hold to be important. Uh, it contains symbolism. Um, I, I think you could probably spend some time, that, which I don't know a thing about, but what, what with the, the cross and the crown, uh, you know, there's some elements, there's some artistic elements here mm -hmm. that are just food for thought. Uh, and again, you could hang this on your wall. And folks, folks could order it through the mail, they could hang it on the wall. Um, I don't know if you have seen Ligon's portraiture. It's, it's, Lucy has it in the office around here, right around the corner. Here, you might want to say something about Ligon. Uh, David Sylvester Ligon cre creates three versions of this. Is that right? Two versions something. of this. Uh, this is a composite of photography of kind of what the great leading preachers among the brotherhood in, in the day. And the day would have been 36 by 40 yeah, inches? Yeah, six foot by 30 foot. Ish, yeah. Yeah, ish. And Ligon said, of course, he bought it from Ligon for $2, and you could hang it in the, par in the parlor as an as a elegant ornament. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's been researched. Now, again, some of, the, some of the folks on this picture would have ministered prior to the division over music and useful instruments in missionary society. So, it, so I'll say what I'm going to say with the understanding that 
And some of these cases may be hard to draw a line, but if memory serves, all of the faces that you see would have been folks who would have been ministering among churches that did not use instruments and did not support societies. Again, this is in 1899 to 1900, so that division is still underway, and it's kind of hard to say that without you know, a 20-minute explanation that John Mark, you look like you're going to give. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, because even though before the Civil War, I mean, the instrument isn't being used, typically, only very small, I mean, only in some very few places. So this does represent kind of a Church of Christ preacher kind of thing. And uh, if you'd have had this same one thing of Christian churches, you'd have had women in here, if it were about Christian churches. But we don't have women in here. I don't think we have a, an African-American in this picture, do we? Even though there were some prominent ones at the time. But we don't have any African American representatives here. If we wanted to look at this, are they an alphabetical order? No. I don't know. Is there, do you think there's a rhyme or reason for that? I think there is a rhyme or reason. I think they're sort of organized, at least initially, based on whatever paper they wrote for. So, like the Gospel Advocate guys are kind of together, the Octographic Review guys are kind of together, the Christian leaders. Some of the folks, of course, uh, he added later. So the, the addition of 1899 didn't include the two columns to the left and right, and more the bottom row. So he, he later adds people. But you're 100% you're right. These are essentially folks opposed to instrumental music in a society. So you don't have somebody on here, for example, like J.W. McGarvey, mm -hmm. who every person up here would have respected and read, but he, he wasn't considered orthodox on those issues. And if you look really closely at their theology in their lives. In 1899, some of these are not getting along. <laughs> they don't get along with each other. Uh, like, a, uh, you know, we got McGarry on here, the Firm Foundation, along with Lipscomb. So it's not a, it's almost gives you the impression of a unified front when we know there are some really significant differences between them. For example, Daniel Summer has women exhorting and reading scripture and leading singing in his churches, whereas Lipscomb thinks that's a private, that's a public thing that women should not be doing. So there's, there's some real differences, and you can project this picture and say, oh, look at the unity of the church, but if you look more closely at what they were doing and saying and how they were living, there would be some really significant differences. Let me remind you, we have 99 slots. <laughs> Oh, don't you want to talk theology? You know? Okay, we're going to do history. Okay, so you want to talk about church buildings in Cambridge? Yeah, and this is uh, the next two photos, right? No, uh, this first photo is Cambridge. If I might remember, Barn Dutton Stone, 1801. Uh, the revival took place there, which was part of a series of revivals, actually. It wasn't the first revival. Um, Campbell, I mean, Stone had been in a revival earlier that year in, uh, in southern Kentucky. This was a communion festival. But you can see the, the simplicity of the building. Right? Very frontier, country kind of simplicity. But this was the location. But we might call, I think we can legitimately call it, the first camp meeting of the history of camp meeting. Because this was a place where they didn't just come for the communion festival. They, all, they came and they camped. And they stayed six days. 
Uh, so it took on the flavor of what we know in terms of the holiness movement, camp meetings. But we call it the King League Revival. The next uh, picture is the uh, Brush Run Church. The Brush Run Church uh, is the, this building is the place where the first Campbell Independent Congregation met. It was 1811. And again, you notice the simple architecture. Uh, there's, a, there's a high value on simplicity early in the movement, and especially in terms of buildings. And that continues with David Lipscomb. He liked the simplicity of buildings and the, uh, the kind of um, uh, not elitist kind of buildings, but rather buildings that the poor would be comfortable in. I think we see that here uh, as well. But Rush Run, and it's established in 1811. So the first Campbell independent congregation was not yet practicing believers immersion. It was, it was I guess, in a technical sense, paedo-baptist at the time, because in 1812 is when the Campbells are baptized. So this church was established with a, kind of the practice of infant baptism in the background. And this is the, oh, yeah. This is what was um, uh, Barton W. Soames' home in Georgetown, Kentucky. Uh, and Matt tells me it's been totally torn down now. Yeah, it's been, it's been disassembled now. Oh. Yeah. But this is, you, you think sites and seeing sites and kind of envision where things would have happened. So when, when Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell meet early on, you know, what, what, what kind of house does Barton Stone live in? writing, ministering, preaching. So again, it's just an interesting kind of window into, um, you know, again, when Barton Stone goes home at the end of the day, where does he go home? Okay, so you can see this cabin. Um, just get a sense. I don't know if you've, if you've been to Bethany and you've seen the Campbell Mansion. We don't have photography of the Campbell Mansion. You may have seen that. Um, but this is, this is um, quite different. Uh, let's, let's shift gears a little now, a, a section here of proclaiming the word. Yes, sir.
The reason that, that she wanted to keep it is because that was the pulpit where Robert um, Fan preached. That was the pulpit where Jesse Ferguson preached. That yes, was the pulpit where young David Lipson delivered some of his first preaching in Nashville. That was the pulpit Philip Paul came back to after the Ferguson fiasco in the 1850s. That was the pulpit where Moses Lord preached. That was the pulpit where Alexander Campbell preached. You name it, the folks came through Nashville, Tennessee in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. T.B. Laramore led a great revival in the 1880s behind that pulpit, um, at which point uh, Jim Allen's parents were baptized. Um, they were disassembling the church, and she saves the pulpit and kept it in her. Where do you put a pulpit? You keep a pulpit in your home, of course, right? Because it was a pulpit. And so they, evidently they took it out to the backyard and young Jim stand behind the pulpit and have our tender picture made. Um, this pulpit was built in the 1820 building in the Baptist Church of Nashville. It's one of the great Baptist churches in the South that more or less wholesale <coughs> came over to the Campbell Reform movement. And that's the pulpit from 1820. Now, young Jim Allen in about what, 1900, 1902, maybe 1905, he would later become the editor of the Gospel Advocate. He would later become a publisher, printer. He edited the Apostolic Times in Nashville for a long time. Very influential writer, thinker, uh, leader among the national churches, and then whomever would be on the subscription list beyond that. Young Jim Allen standing behind the national pulpit. Again, the idea is to preach the word. Think about the, that pulpit compared with what, what's your pulpit look like in your congregation? You got one of those skinny little uh, transparent things, you know? So the architecture of pulpits says something about what you think, at least this is the, the idea, what you think about the authority of the word being proclaimed there. I mean, that, that's the traditional understanding of a pulpit, is it represents the authority of the word that's spoken from that pulpit. And you, you get that all the way back into the medieval period and the way it's constructed in the cathedrals and so on. And now we do it differently. That's, it's, it's a matter of cultural change, isn't it? Cultural perception. And we haven't done church the same way all the time, right? And we haven't had the same pulpits all the time, though this pulpit lasted almost 100 years in that one church. Oh, the word pulpit? It's only in the Old Testament. And uh, so when uh, a given church uses something else to hold their books on, they can get it on and it doesn't make any difference anyways. Well, yeah, I, I think the point is not the convenience of uh, having something to set your Bible on, I think, or your notes or whatever. I, I think the point, I think, I think about John Calvin, the points he makes about pulpit, that it's about representing, just like having a table represent something in the assembly. So the pulpit isn't about the pulpit. It's about how it represents the authority of the word of God proclaimed from that space. We've got pictures of tables. In just a second, we'll get to some tables. Oh, we've got a comment. I'm saying that the pulpit is the beam. The beam, yeah. Yeah. 
that's good. Thank you. Thank you for that, the beam. Here's another couple of uh, pictures preaching. The idea is we are a people of the proclaimed word. You can't go far. You can't stretch the sun camel surface and not get into preaching, teaching. Look at the back of the, you know, the rumble scene. Come here, Busby. Busby, gospel preaching. This is uh, Horace Busby, widely known evangelist across the south and southeast, southwest in the 1920s and 30s. Just a great advertising, right? Come here, who, you know, who's ever been to a gospel meeting and you handed out the handbills and attacked the posters up all over town? Come here preaching. Okay, what a great image that is. Here's a, here's a gospel meeting card. The only one I've ever seen that has a woman on it. Myrtle is just graduated, I think, from Eureka in Illinois. So that's her graduation picture. Happy now. Myrtle Park Storm. Myrtle will hold forth on these topics. You are invited to come here. And I think this is um, this is not dated. If memory serves, I think this is uh, 1910 or further. Yeah, it is interesting that you have her education picture there. Maybe, maybe that's the only picture she had. I don't know. But you put that she's got her graduation cap on there. It's almost a signal that says this is somebody worth listening to, you know. Uh, but this isn't just somebody off the street or somebody who made up their own story. But this is an educated person come listen to this woman uh, proclaim the gospel. Here's a here's a great group shot, and, and we were quite, you know thinking about proclaiming the word. I wanted to to, to throw this one up here. Uh, this is a non-Bible class congregation, but they're out front. Notice the ad: gospel meeting, everyone come. But the dynamic in a non-class church is you didn't have Bible classes for the kids. All the kids were in with the grown-ups. The kids heard the same preaching the adults heard. So you think about what community formation, you think about the sense of a, of a unified body. You got all these kids uh, you know, posing for the picture. You know, I don't know if it's an annual tradition. Everyone poses for a picture before the gospel meeting. But this was in one of the church papers, one of the non-class, non-Bible class uh, church uh, papers. Um, just a great image. And it's from Visalia, California. Yeah. Do we have anybody in this room who's in that photo? <laughs> <laughs> the next one is from the stage of the Ryman Auditorium. You may have seen Ryman, or uh, Harvard's Tabernacle Sermon, you sit, open the front page and you see that very iconic shot of the crowd from up in the balcony of the Ryman Auditorium. And I thought about grabbing that one. I thought, well, no, let's use this one instead. This is from 1938, one of the later meetings, from the stage, looking out towards the crowd. And you just see this raft of people, uh, every square inch, just packed, which is typical for a Harvard Tabernacle series. They packed them in. But the point being, think about the impact of the proclamation. Day in, day out, twice a day, uh, full house, full crowds. Uh, this was a, a pretty significant moment. Now, it happened in two or three stages, 22, 23, 28, 38, 43. Hardman preached these sermons often, or these series, uh, over several periods. Yeah, I think that. we can say the Hardman Tabernacle sermons had a profound effect on shaping the identity of churches of Christ. Uh, along with lectureships and Bible study materials, but 
the publication of his sermons had a profound effect. I, I just, it, it just occurred to me, just sitting here looking at it, that uh, this might be the only time women are on stage, you know, I don't know. That, that's kind of interesting <laughs> that they're sitting up there with everybody else. Usually at some meeting like that, you have local preachers sitting on the stage behind the speaker, right? And I don't know, maybe I haven't seen enough pictures, but to have the wives sitting with them or women on the stage too, that's interesting. Well, there's lots that we can say. One point being, okay, now we've already seen enough to see, to, to say, I think, photographs constitute a great source of information about the past. Mm -hmm. So as we're telling a story, as we're writing history, as we are creating uh, understanding about the past, all of a sudden now, I think we've already made that photographs constitute great sources of information. It may be able to say, did this happen at this date, on this time? Uh, it may not have ever happened again, but I've got this photograph that shows this thing happened. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, let's move forward. Uh, among the, the churches affiliated with Daniel Sommer, the proclaiming of the word, of course, happens in gospel meetings, but it also happens in Bible readings, or what we, I, I guess, the, the, the best way to about it is Bible classes, intensive Bible study and kind of class format over a period of days. And we're going to just teach through the biblical text. Here's E.M. Zur. You may have E.M. Zur's commentaries at home. This is the E.M. Zur who wrote those commentaries. He's sitting here, uh, or standing here. He's got a chart and he's going to teach through. This is at Dean Avenue. I don't know where Dean Avenue was. 70s, until you got more technology available. You know. uh, well, speaking of technology, speaking of charts, we've got some charts coming up. I, I've got this image for this uh, advertisement for the Jewel Miller film strips. Who's seen Jewel Miller? Who's heard of Jewel Miller? Okay. We're thinking proclaiming the word. We're thinking about teaching the word. We're thinking about the stories that have shaped us. I asked, who's heard of Drew Miller in a room of complete strangers in Pepperdine? I've never been here before. And lots of hands go up. So all of a sudden, we have a very similar shared pool of experience that we can draw from uh, using this film strip method to teach and preach and proclaim. This advertisement, uh, up at the top, it's hard to tell. I don't even know if I could read it as close as I am. But when he's talking about 700 baptisms, have come through this K.K. Mitchell, who's the preacher in standing there, has had 700 baptisms using these film strips. And Jewel also says, we've got an edition of African-American model, black model. So when you take my film strip, I guess you do a one-on-one -on -one Bible study with the Jones family, and the Jones family is African-American, and you've got a picture of white family up on the, on the film strip. Okay, well, I guess that's okay, but if we had a picture of the black family, in the film strip. Could that be useful? He has editions of the film strips with African-American models. 
So again, as an archivist, I'm now looking at every film strip reel that comes through of Jill Miller. Okay, I hold it up to the light and I want to see. And it's interesting. Some of the models are very leave it to Beaver, the Cleaver family. It's very first edition. The way the models are dressed look just like Beaver. Then there's a 60s edition. They look like Brady Bunch. <laughs> and now in the 70s, there's another edition, the clothing changes. He was keeping up with fashion styles, so even 20 years later, you wouldn't see things of people you know, in the film strip that look totally abnormal. They look just like us, look just like them. This is R.H. Bowl, leader of the premillennial churches, sitting down having a Bible class at Fort Laramie Church just before his death. Again, you think about the dynamic of who was your teacher? What, in what way were you taught? You, someone taught you. Someone taught me. Someone taught my teachers. And someone taught them. And someone taught their teachers. It may have happened in class settings. It may have happened in revivals. It may have happened in mass meetings. It may have happened in a one-on-one -on -one Bible study. It may have happened in a Bible reading. It may have happened in a non-class church or a premium church. But all, the point being is look at the shared experiences that, that have shaped us. Okay, John Mark, you want to talk about chart preaching? This is Leander Moore, deaf minister at the Central Church in Nashville, preaching some charts. Yeah, and this is the chart preaching is um, extremely common. And uh, my, uh, I met, in fact, the other day, I was at a homecoming, 70-year homecoming of Coin Heights, Virginia Church. And one of the elderly ladies, who's 99 years old, was in her wheelchair, and I, I leaned over to give her a kiss because I've known her since she was one of my Bible class teachers when I was young. And she said, come to me, I, didn't, I never knew before that she is the one who drew my father's charts. And I was like, wow, okay, I still have those, you know? I said, you didn't sign them. I said, no, I didn't sign them, you know? But it's amazing. I mean, uh, I don't know if you have that experience of watching a chart sermon. My, my experience is watching my dad or watching some other gospel preacher, you know, in a meeting, is I look at the chart and I said, okay, got it. <laughs> you, I know what you're doing with all of this. This, this. this all makes sense already for me. And you can't just put it out there a little bit at a time. But let's just walk through yeah, some of these. Next, you might, you might, oh, sorry, go ahead. You might recognize this one. Uh, this is kind of a standard eschatology chart. Um, where the infants are irresponsible. I don't think he means what he means by that. I don't think he means irresponsible. I think he means innocent, right? Not accountable. Infants are not irresponsible. Well, I guess, what are they? But anyway, they're not accountable, right? So they're safe. That's been the theology. Infants are safe. They're, they're not sinners and they're not righteous. They're just safe. They're, they're innocent. But then you go to accountability. You're going into the world. You're going into the sphere of human lives and you either become part of the church and walk up those steps, right? Steps of salvation, which, uh, which go beyond baptism, but go into the um, virtues of, of 2 Peter 1, right? Uh, I, remember, I remember my dad doing that one. The, the steps keep going. You see five steps to the church and seven steps into heaven? Right. You see faith, belief, confess, Add to your faith virtue. F, B, K is for knowledge. And T, I don't remember. On you go. Okay, so you can see how a preacher could unpack an entire sermon using one chart. Yeah, of course it's defective. 
because it doesn't have hearing at the beginning. Right? It doesn't have the five steps. It's got, got to have hearing, you know, it's going to have the five steps. But then you get, you know, the eschatology of heaven and hell. Um, and notice that it's not only the wicked who go to hell, but it's the unfaithful. And that's a way of, of course, speaking to your community. So you want to be faithful. Be, you know, that's part of five. That's the sixth step, right? Faithful until death, right? Would be the sixth step. Now, this next one is quite a different approach of chart preaching. Probably one of the most highly stylized charts I've seen. Mm -hmm. But again, if you look at it, you could see, you could get a sermon out of that. You could see how that could represent a sermon. But I also kind of want to raise the, the, the idea that there is something, just look, none of you can take your eyes off of it. Okay, so a preacher puts that up at the at the front of the church, he's got you. Well, he, it's a wonderful rhetorical device uh, or, or visual aid or aid to teaching because now you're, if you're old, you're young, you're a kid. You know, I could imagine a room full of those kids that we just you know, showed from the non-class church in a chart sermon kind of scenario just being glued to the preacher. Maybe they'll, you know, they'll understand it as much as a 10-year-old could understand, but they could follow along and they could see, now what's he going to do here? This, I think, is from the 1940s. That's when Wizard of Oz is in color, right? So we got color charts now. But notice it's here, you know, you're going into the arena, you're going into where you're running the race, right, as a Christian, but you have the here, believe, repent, you know. That. Uh, and then you got outside the arena where all these different sort of fights are going on, and you've got one guy giving an answer. But in the church, you got all these problems. You got people fighting, people doing different things. So it's, it's really, it is a, this is the kind of chart you look at and say, what in the world is he going to say about that? You know? But again, rhetorically, that's where I want you as a preacher, because now I can teach you. It's a hook. It's a great hook. Uh, it's, a, it's a device that grabs your attention and holds your attention, because you may see what I'm going to do point one, but you don't know what I'm going to end. And so I can walk you through this. And I don't even need electricity. I don't need electricity projector that works, right? I can just hang this up in the meeting house uh, and fold it up and take it in my suitcase and we'll take it and get on the train and we'll go down to the next town and we'll preach the sermon again. So, um, How large is it? This is a bed sheet. So this is as big as this screen. <laughs> I, sorry, I should have... A lot of them are bed sheets. This, this is a queen-size bed sheet. Fully illustrated. And this one, this one is about uh, at least a full-size bed sheet. Sorry, I should thank you. Okay. Uh, Jerry, tell us about this baptism. I added this photo because uh, with our strong emphasis on preaching the gospel, obeying the gospel, and how many baptisms took place in rivers, my mother was baptized in the summer of 1933 in Current River up in Northeast Arkansas. And the person who was preaching, she was 14, the person who was preaching George W. DeHoff, he was 19. He was a student at Harvard. Did you ever used to follow Ripley's Believe It or Not? I got hooked up looking at those. There was a, a Believe It or Not column one time when Ripley said, Believe It or Not, George W. DeHoff had baptized 2,700 people by immersion by the age of 25 or something like that. 
If you go see Dehoff's grave today, it says on his tombstone he baptized 10,556 people. <coughs> now he, <coughs> he swept through Northeast Arkansas in the summer of 33. And here's my, and of course he's preaching at night, so everybody drives their Model T down to the current river and keeps their headlights on. So you got all these cars putting their headlights on across the river. My mother and a lot of other people, she's 14, waves out there halfway through the current river and the hall baptizes her in Christ. This photo was sent to me uh, years ago and I, a woman sent it to me and I don't know if she's the young woman being baptized. What fascinated me about this, number one was the dress. I mean, here are the women with their hats and, and I think this was turn of the century, 1900, could be the first decade. And I'm fascinated by the man Let's not get off on that today, but I've often held up a hand when I'm baptizing, but not every time. I'd be curious to know what the thinking is there. But what fascinated me was this is not the South. This is not the Mid-South. This is not the Midwest. This is not Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. This photo is from Oregon. So we're way out here in the American Northwest, and this is not my port. <clears throat> or Salem, or Eugene. This is out in the middle of nowhere, down in the southeast corner of Oregon, close to the California line. But it's still preaching the gospel, obeying the gospel. Look at the people way at the top of the photo. They've come out to share this life-changing moment with this young woman in this river, somewhere in Oregon. I just thought we needed one photo like that somewhere in the this is photo 25. We have 74 to go. <laughs> hey, well, we're having fun, though. We're having fun. But, but I do think that this guy doesn't have any waiters on. You notice that, right? There's no waiters. So that, that is itself interesting. <laughs> Preaching uh, healthy delivery. This is an illustration from a, a promotional booklet that WLAC AM radio in Nashville, Tennessee, put out. All about the radio station. And one page had S.H. Hall, who's upper left, E.W. McMillan, upper right, and at the bottom is the front door of Central Church, and A.M. Burton is greeting everyone as they come in to tell you about the radio preaching that happened over the radio in WLAC. This was, this was published in 1939, when WLAC had its most expansive uh, array of broadcasting time available for churches for Christ. And it was the most expansive ministry of radio that the Central Church had undertaken. So again, we're preaching by mass media. Think about, again, who of you have gotten ready for church and you listened to Herald of Truth? Or you watched Herald of Truth and then you went to church and got back from church and on the way back from church you were driving in and there was a radio program. Um, we did that in Nashville every Sunday night as we would get back from, from church for the world came on. We would listen to that as we got in. Um, radio preaching. Then we get into television. This is Baxter Barrett Baxter on the set of Herald of Truth. So again, who has seen the Herald of Truth radio or program or heard the radio or saw the television programs? Okay. Again, there's something shared by a lot of people in this room, and we're coming from all over the place, but think about what that has done to, uh, to shape us and perform us. <coughs> 
Yeah, that reminds me of my mother when she lived in Memphis. She would drive to work, and she would watch something at home, and then she would drive to worship listening to one of the programs, and she'd sit in the car until the program was over, and then she'd go into the assembly, you know, on time, but nevertheless. And she would always call me up, did you hear that on the radio today? And I'm saying, Mom, I don't listen to the radio anymore, you know, kind of. So it's part of her culture, and part of her culture. She grew up listening to radio preaching, and so this building is uh, Bethany, the building at Bethany. Uh, you notice the simple style. It's not elaborate. It's very, there's no baptistry in this building, right? And uh, you baptize in running water and you baptize outside. Baptistry is a convenience that comes much later. Uh, and the double doors. Um, there's, there's several theories about the double doors. I'm not sure which one was true of Bethany. Do you know? I don't know. I, don't know. I, I mean, sometimes it's men and women. Yeah, I know in some places in the South, it was African-American and white, two doors. Um, if you go there, they tell you it's men and women. Does it tell you it's what? Men and women? Okay. Uh, I, I believe that. I mean, I think that that was very common for men and women to be separated uh, in the assemblies of that time. And, uh, oh, which one is this? This is... Uh, Oh, this is the McMinnville Church. This, this building Christian was built Church. in 1880. Uh, Still a very simple style, but now you've got a steeple, right? And it's uh, recognizable. You can, you can see it in the town, right? People living over there, over there, they can see where the church building is. And it has that kind of symbolic uh, meaning for, for the congregation itself. And that is it. Can you read that? That says the Church of God, and underneath it says. I think it says 1883. 1883. All right. So it's not Church of Christ built in AD 33. This is Church of God built in. Church of God. But this was this was a restoration congregation. This is not. We we got the building from the Assemblies of God and kept the stone. This is what it illustrates is there is a fluidity of the use of. certainly is adequate. It certainly does get the job done, but there's nothing extraordinary. There's nothing architecturally just significant about this. This is what you could find in any one. Uh, let's get the simple church in Cincinnati here. Now, this is an extraordinary church. This, this was the 18, late 1860s, 1870. I think it was finished in 1872. Is that right? I think that's right. And uh, this is Cincinnati, Ohio, Christian church. Put in an organ in this church. Built this church with an organ, uh, which got uh, Lipscomb's attention and some other people's attention, but the price of the building is what got Lipscomb's attention. Lipscomb is in the South. In 1866, he's raising money for the poor in the South, and he, he was only able to raise $100,000, which was pretty good, though. It wasn't bad, but he got $100,000 trying to raise funds for the poor, and then five years later or so, he learns that Cincinnati built a building with an organ that cost much more than a hundred thousand dollars, 
And he was just, he was baffled by that. He didn't, he didn't connect with that at all. He, he didn't understand how you could spend that much money on a building. In fact, he suggested that instead of using that amount of money on a building, what you should do is build six buildings of, of a simpler style scattered around the city. You know, so that you could have neighborhood churches, which is what you know, Lipscomb, Mac has demonstrated this in some of his work, that Lipscomb was interested in neighborhood churches. And so building a building like this was just anathema to him. Share with, share with us what he said when it burnt. <laughs> well, now that I'm second-guessing myself, I don't know, if, was it this building or was it the church in Nashville? It was the one in Nashville, but, but the point is... Okay, the yeah. one in Nashville, okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right. right. When the church in Nashville built an elaborate new building uh, and it burned? In the 1850s. In yeah. 1857, the word reached down in Bedford County, I think it's where Lipson was preaching. Brother Lipson, the church in Nashville burned the ground last night. He says, thank God that church burned. We never needed that building, and we we're glad that it's gone. I rejoiced when I heard the news that that, that monstrosity had burned. And that's, that's my word, not his. But you can see that sense of we are, we are in a better position to get that building kind of off around our collective necks. We yeah. never should have done it, and I'm glad that it's gone. That's an interesting view. I don't know if any of you are involved in building programs back home or renovation programs. Uh, but you think about the spaces in which you, you worship, the spaces in which you minister, you think the buildings you build, and what that says about what's important to you and what you want to convey. Yes? Uh, what's interesting about this is a lot of these are controversies in the mission field, like, for instance, Africa. Whether or not to build a, uh, a baptistry or how much money you spend on the building. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yes, yeah. good point. I think uh, maybe uh, one other thing is, uh, one of the things Lipscomb didn't like about these big buildings is they tended to turn inward and keep up stuff, right? You're gonna keep up the building. And they tended to monopolize among the two or three leaders, four or three, you know, turn into the pastor does everything, you know, like P.S. Fall was a, um, the pastor in, in Nashville and Lipscomb complained about him because he just he did everything. He did the table, he did the preaching, he did the praying. And that was kind of symbolic for him that when you had a building like that, you had to have a status. You had to have an elite status. You had to have the best preacher. You had to have the best, you know, instead of the simplicity, what Lipscomb would call it, the simplicity of the gospel, um, instead we're, we're, we're operating in a different cultural milieu. And, and, you know, Andrew Lipson, that was not a condition where, you know, and I, you may have been in this situation, I was, lots of us were, where you are, where you do everything in church because there's no one else to do everything right, in church. Right. You do the singing and then do this and that. It wasn't for lack of talent, Lipson said. There's plenty of talent at Church of National. It's the fact that we've got an eloquent pastor who will do everything for us. And we could have exercised our gifts, but we didn't. Big building yeah. represented yeah. that to The cushion views and the fancy lights and the woodwork. The, you know, anyway, this unit had Right. He wanted, you know, he wanted a place where the poor would feel comfortable. Right. So, which one we got up here now? Oh, this is uh, Union Avenue. This is Union Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, this was built, what, 1929, something like that. 
it really represents the crossing of churches to Christ from that frontier, simple milieu into an upper middle class, middle class. It's a cultural shift. And this building was really controversial when it was built because there were many churches of Christ who wanted the more simple operation going on. And to put this much money into a building as kind of a, especially with the kind of, look at the architecture, you know, the pillars, and you had this dome kind of thing going on, uh, which looks almost like a Greek Orthodox church, you know, with that dome. Um, that was just too much for a lot of people, and especially the money that was invested in it. I think it was 29. I might be wrong about that, but it's somewhere in there. Do you know, Jerry? I think it was a little earlier. Was it earlier? Was it like 23, maybe? Yeah, yeah something like that? Okay. Okay. You can Google that probably and find out. I just know that Frank Pack grew up there, was baptized at 10, mm. and loved that congregation. He loved the pillars mm. and all of that. And uh, he gave, you know, he preached out here at Colorful Falls. He's on a Bible family. And I would talk to him about. Yeah. And that some people had criticized that church, but he didn't. He right. Well, that, that was his world, right? Yeah. Um, and and there's, we get a lot of church buildings built with pillars from the 30s, 40s, 50s, like the West End Church in Nashville has those pillars. And then, oh, the Broadway at Lubbock. Yeah. And Jerry, you said this was built like 49, 50? 50. Okay. Well, Carl Helen went to Europe in 49 to look at cathedrals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has a cathedral look, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just smaller. It's not, not the big cathedral. But, but yeah. But that, but that culturally represents the big shift from that simple frontier motif to a crossing the tracks, you might say, middle class. We're, we've, we've arrived in culture. Now, I'm not saying necessarily people were thinking that way. We're going to build a building because we've arrived in culture. But it's just the the natural development as our people became lawyers and they became doctors and you know that sort of thing and we have more money we build better buildings or prettier buildings more elite buildings more status type buildings yeah. okay jerry tell us about this church uh, this is portland oregon the third governor of oregon was george woods w-o-o-d-s a well-known preacher in the church he won the election, a very tight election. He was Republican and beat the Democrat by very few votes. This was 19, I mean, sorry, 1866. He was 34, and he served a four-year term. But when he arrived, the church wasn't needed, and there was no visible building. And he rallied the congregation, soon found 75 members, said we need to build, and they built this for $7,500 out of brick. It became known as the Little Brick Church and the Steeple, and it was at the corner of Center and North, right in the heart of the capital city, Salem, Oregon. They put in elders, I think the second year, George Woods was put in as an elder at the age of 35. He often preached here. Even though he uh, brought in a preacher, Peter Burnett from California, who became the preacher. And for four years, they grew. They were at 103, then they grew some more. In the last three months of his term, 
They baptized 22 people, and they finished paying off the last debt. So when he left them in 1870, he left this free building, which was paid for. He left a congregation of about 140 or 50 that hadn't even been meeting when he arrived. And uh, he did not get reelected. Notice the Pope's election. Maybe not everybody in Portland was excited at how often he preached in his own church while he was governor of the state. But Ulysses Grant, the president of the United States, knowing that he was now available at 38, asked him to go to Utah and be the governor of Utah Territories. So he shows up in Utah in 71 and serves till 75. But he doesn't get reelected because he quarrels with Brigham Young, who had been, who had been an earlier governor of Utah. I think the first governor of Utah was Brigham Young. Brigham Young dies in 1877. That was two years after uh, our brother George Woods ended his four-year term. Then he moved back to California, and then he came back to Oregon. And he died early. I think he was only 58. But George Woods, the third governor of Oregon, outstanding preacher, had everybody, when you read about him, everybody talks about what a voice, what a speaker, how you know, crowds came to hear him. Other politicians asked him to, to give his speeches to them. And uh, anyway, that was Portland, Oregon. This down in the bottom left-hand corner is the first Church of Christ building here in Los Angeles. A-frame, Temple Street. We're looking at Temple Street, and the big street here in the middle, all the way to the ocean, is Broadway. And you notice the glass plate has been broken. See the crack? Now, T.D. Laramore comes in. This is 82. T.D. Laramore comes in 94, preaches a gospel meeting, baptizes 122, and builds the Broadway church tracks. Go to the next. Well, go back to the other one. Uh, let me, uh, I should have pointed this out. Uh, hey, Jerry, is it the one in the, in the left-hand corner, or is it the, the one, is it the house? Uh, this is the Temple, Temple Street Church Christ. Okay. And they end up going over to here, not on the corner, right here to build the Broadway Church Christ. So we'll go to the next slide. Here's the Broadway Church Christ that in later years, became the Broadway Christian Church, but look at the sign over the double doors. The Church of Christ couldn't be easily pulled out of there, it was in glass. Uh, so look at this building built in 1895. You've got a, a ground level, a basement level, you've got the main level, you've got a third level. J.W. McGarvey preached in this building in 1902 on a hot August night and drew over 800 people. Look at the car on the left. You can begin to think, what year is this? What year is this? I can tell you exactly what year it is, but not from that car, but from this advertisement showing what movie was played. What is it? Gold Rush? Charlie Chaplin? Yeah. We're looking at 1927 here. This is a 1927 photo. But this building burned in 1936. But uh, Larry Moore's meeting And this one I chose because this is the Central Church Christ in Los Angeles. Look at the size of these doors. 
This was built a year into the Depression, 1930, red brick building. If you go to our Heritage Center next year, you'll see a full picture of the building. What fascinated me was, who are these people? This is not Sunday morning worship. The women are all dressed in white. I count 38 of them. The men behind them, I count 38. They're the product of the man here in the center, the song leader, O.B. Curtis. There's Sam Whitty, the preacher, James Scott. But O.B. Curtis put this chorus together. This photo is June 10, 18, 1934. June 10. And they're going all over Los Angeles just to sing and to help make people happy in the very heart of the Depression. So they would worship on Sunday, and then they would take off and sing Sunday afternoon or all through the week. And when I was preaching in Santa Barbara, it was common for me to get a call from the funeral home and say, we've got somebody listed as Church Christ, and this guy just died, and can you come down and do the funeral? And I always said yes. One day I got a call, and I went down, and it was, it was O.B. OB Curtis. And uh, was a, anyway, the guy there kneeling in the middle, his son and daughter had come, he had died, and they said, call the local church Christ. And I, I got to preach the funeral of O.B. Curtis. But then later I found these photographs and heard these stories of how they just sang, loved to sing hymns, sang all over the Los And I threw this one in because it's Hollywood, and that's a famous name. But this is 1944. I don't think they built this, I think they bought it. And here's uh, Tommy Phillips, always smiling. These are some of the elders. I show this because the Church of Christ still needs me. And the preacher is the chairman of our Bible department, Daniel Rodriguez, who's been here for years. And Daniel's about to start his seventh year as the director of our, he's the dean of our Bible department. But this is still a Bible church. Okay. Some pictures of the church at table. Again, you, you see the, the photography as a source of information. Uh, this is the Central Church in downtown Nashville. Off to the left, you'll see the table with the cloth over it. The table is a central, physically central aspect of our weekly formation, of our weekly gathering. Obviously, when the windows are open and, and fly open, this is the Jefferson Street Church in Nashville. John, you're going to say something about that? Yeah, notice also just the liturgical space here. You know, the table is below the pulpit. That's typical uh, in our tradition. Now, you'll find exceptions. There'll be exceptions. Um, but typically, the pulpit, and this is very Protestant. That's not true in a liturgical tradition, either a Catholic tradition or an Orthodox tradition. The table is more central. But in the Protestant tradition, it's the word that interprets the table, and the word has kind of a priority. This is the Jefferson Street Church in Nashville, Tennessee. This is a great shot because it's from the front looking out to the crowd. So you're not seeing the back of people's heads, you're seeing their faces. These folks look like they're glad to be there. They look like they love each other. They are, you know, and you don't see what the preacher, quite the expression on the preacher's face, but it looks like he's in mid-sermon. It's a great shot. 
It's one of my favorite photographs. You can see the, the top of the tray, uh, the communion tray on the table at the very bottom of the picture. This this is now the Schrader Lane Church in Nashville, Jefferson Street, now Schrader Lane. This is Floyd Wallace and Floyd New Wallace Jr. and Marion Davis at a gospel meeting. Marion Davis was the song leader. He got a great expression on his face. <laughs> but you can see the table there. You've got the preacher, you've got the song leader. Uh, we're singing the invitation song. We're singing a song. I, I, I forget if this is. Oh, this is the song before yeah. the sermon, right? I think um, I think uh, Boy is over there saying, when is this song going to be over? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, let's think about schools and colleges quickly. This is an image of the old Bethany College. You may have seen the iconic Gothic architecture of Bethany. This is this is the building that burned, that occasion the building of the, of the one that we have, have seen. Um, obviously, there's an educational tradition that's inaugurated with Bacon College, with Bethany College, and with Franklin College. Uh, Bacon in Kentucky, uh, Bethany obviously in Bethany, Virginia, and then Franklin College in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Albert Canyon School. This is a wonderful engraving. Franklin College burns just after the Civil War. I'm not aware of a photograph of Franklin College, at least not the building that burned. I could be wrong on that. Uh, there are some images of this building over to the left. I believe this is the Fanning home, and in the building, in the, in the center, is the college building. After the war, there are some educational efforts that, that happened out of uh, the Fanning property that, that would have had that house, and then the Fanning Working School is built on this site. I believe this is the attic where they stowed away the Campbell portrait during the Civil War that I showed you earlier. Um, John Mark, you want to talk about David Lipscomb? Yeah, these next two pictures are David Lipscomb. Very nice photo of him. Um, I, this has got to be like in the 1880s, 1890s, probably the 1890s probably. Uh, because the, the, the Harding and Fanning together, I'm not Fanning, but Harding and Lipscomb together in that next picture. Um, that, that's kind of the National Bible School era, the 1890s. You can see how they're dressed. I mean, they're, this is this was the way they dressed all the time. This was not kind of getting up for the picture. This kind of um, uh, style they preached in these clothes. They preached in this kind of style, very formal. But you can see it. There's a little difference. Look at you know Lipscomb has this uh, facial expression of kind of uh, I'm happy to be here sort of thing or what am I doing here? I don't you know what is this about? And Harding is kind of I'm ready. You know, let's get this thing going. You know, um, and if you go to the picture of Hardy, you can see it's kind of fire in his eyes. He was always he had these blue eyes, and it was always said that he that when he preached, you could see the fire in his eyes. That he was a very passionate preacher. Lipscomb was a very kind of um, didactic teacher. You know, just kind of I'm going to tell you this, and this is how you know. But Harding was this passionate, fiery type that he would be crying one moment, be yelling another moment, be laughing another moment. But it was always uh, enriching, apparently, because he was well-liked for his preaching. And then we see the Nashville Bible School. Um, 
what year is this, Matt? This is June. 1994, 95. 94, 95? Okay. Very, so this is kind of the um, building is downtown Nashville. It's, this is the old building. Yeah. The old campus uh, downtown. Yeah. Park Spruce Street. Street. Yeah, yeah. Park Street. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. This is boy moved out to, Cam, uh, to Lipscomb's farm in uh, 1903. Lipscomb donated the farm uh, to the institution as long as when he died, his wife could still live in that house. Um, while uh, this, while she was still alive, uh, they actually built a new house. So it was one house um, that was the original house of Lipscomb on that farm, and they built a new house, just kind of like across, just across the way, and they built it on top of a spring, because Maggie Lipscomb's wife wanted to be able to store stuff down in the spring and and keep it cool, and she could go down in the spring and get water without going outside. So that was great in the way. But that's not what this is. This is uh, downtown Nashville. Matt, you, yeah. you, Matt, you had an interesting point about this there's, one. There's a couple of things about here. Uh, this is a very poignant picture. Uh, we see on the, obviously this is faculty and student body in Nashville Bible School. We're going to see children here. This is probably not only faculty children, but also grade school kids. Um, off to the left is an African-American woman see her kind of leaning in. Uh, we don't know her name. I don't know her name. It, as I see this, I see I see a young woman who's so close and yet so far from international Bible school. When you think about the educational trajectory that would have taken, this is 1890, it's taken a full 50, 60 years for our Christian schools to integrate, uh, aside from George Pepper Valley, which was integrated from the so this, this, this is a woman who they knew her name, I suspect, but we don't know her name. Uh, she's, she's so close, and yet she may have been a member of the South Nashville, uh, would have been the colored edition, the, the language that was used uh, in the papers. This was in South Nashville. It's now the uh, South Street Church. Still there, still meeting, African American Church. I think this, this is possible that she may have been a member of the church in Nashville. Again, that's me surmising. But, but you, you see a very poignant picture here of, the, of the, what, just think about the trajectory of the National Bible School. Well, that's, that's on the bottom left-hand corner. On the bottom right-hand corner, kind of shift over, we see David Lipscomb and James A. Harding right here on the front row. Uh, there's uh, Lipscomb, there's Harding. If we were Lipscomb, Harding. This is J.N. Armstrong, Harding's son-in-law, who would become tremendously and at Harding and at many other of these smaller schools, um, the tradition of education that comes out of the National Bible School is astounding. Here's David Lipscomb. Here's James A. Harding. This was J.S. Moore. Here's J.N. Armstrong. Over here, kind of slouching over and looking like he's kind of up to something. Is Jesse Sewell. Jesse P. Sewell. I don't know if you remember Jesse Sewell or heard the name. There's young Jesse Sewell. He served at Harding. He Abilene, he worked here, he worked there, he worked everywhere. He's preaching, he's teaching, so is his wife. There, there's a, a tremendous amount of trajectory ahead of this picture. If we were to come way over here, this guy third from the right, sorry, third from the left, that's R.H. Bowl. That's R.H. Bowl, who would become the leader of 
were to play it on the back room, this guy up here on the upper back left, that's young John T. Lewis, looking very, looking like he's ready to go to church. This is he, uh, just a, he looked very confident. Well, he will be a very confident thought leader for the churches of Christ throughout the 20th century, up until his death in the 60s. Church planner in Birmingham. Birmingham. So, so in this one photograph, we've got a lot of potential. We've got a lot of educational trajectory that comes out of this. We're going across the country from yes. Abilene to Birmingham. You know, just and then you think about Kansas and you know, Jay and Armstrong, Arkansas. I mean, this group of men had an impact on the church. If you think about the experiences that have shaped us, continuing on an educational. This is the interior of School Auditorium on the campus of Abilene Christian College when it first opened on the hill in 1929. Again, here we are at a Christian school. How many of us went to one of these schools? Lipscomb, Hardin, Pepperdine, New York, ODC, Faulkner, Free Hardin. Okay, take all these hands go up. Who remembers Daily Chapel? Who remembers Daily Bible? Who remembers the singing in chapel? Who remembers learning songs we've never heard before? And now there's a thousand other people singing this. You may have come from a little church of ten people on the far side of nowhere, and you've come to heaven, right, to one of our Christian schools to sing in chapel with a thousand people every day. Okay, think about the formative experience of shaping generation after generation of students. Think about the chapel, think about the Bible classes, think about the lectureships. Here we are at Pepperdine Bible Lectures, carrying off an 80-year tradition that started, if we go back, uh, many years even before that. Here is G.P. Bowser, who inaugurates an educational tradition among African-American churches of Christ. Here's uh, the Bowser family at Silver Point. He's an editor, he's a preacher, he's a teacher, he's a lifelong, ardent advocate that African-American education is viable if we just have the resources to and Silver Point is in Tennessee, about a, um, an hour, shall we say, east of, east of Nashville. Well, there's a trajectory that continues with Marshall Keeble and the National Bible and the National Christian Institute. This, this photograph, the young man on Marshall Keeble's left, which would be our right, this young man, this is taken in about 1944 or 45. This young man, pardon? 1942. It may be. Uh, this is very early. I thought Fred was 12. It, in that case, he probably was. <laughs> so this would have been at 42, 43. Young man who, this, these are some of the young men who travel with Marshall Keeble and preach and teach. His provisions. His, his interns, we would probably say. Right, young Fred Gray, in just a few years, would become legal counsel for Rose Park and the, the legal architect to the civil rights movement. I think that's probably a fair way to characterize his work. He stands here with Marshall Keeble early in the trajectory of, of uh, that, that tradition. Let's just talk about big events. In 1909, the anniversary, the centennial anniversary of the publication of the Declaration and Address. Everyone Come to Pittsburgh, we'll celebrate for you. This is prominent among Christian churches, churches of Christ, not so much. They gathered at Forbes Field for communion. Forbes Field was branded in 1909. And they gathered for communion. And this is a yard-long photograph at the back of the book that contains the speeches. This is my exhibit that I've got over at 
at ACU, so it's hard to get the whole thing in there. Here's a closer view of the crowd at Forbes Field to celebrate the centennial of the Declaration of Independence, October 1909. It's the only baseball picture we have. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a group of, of preachers who, this is one of the beginning points of the Bible lectures that happened. This is the postcard. The school turned it into a postcard and mailed it out for the centennial. That, that accounts for the purple on the left. But this is the preachers who gathered for what Bible study teaching thinking together, hearing preaching, it, it morphs into what we call literature. Right? Think about all of the preaching that has happened across the nation, across the world, because we've also got other lectures. This is the National Lectureship uh, for African American Churches. This particular one was in Detroit. All of the men are there. If you see Marshall Peoples down front and center, seated. But here's, all, and again, what I see is I see, I see everyone in this. Look at the fellowship. Look at the everyone smiling. Everyone, they have they have heard preaching now for what a week, April of nineteen sixty one. Everyone looks like they're glad to be there. Think about the impact of events on the common life across the board for those who attend, and then the wives have their pictures. So all the wives are here. Again, everyone smiling. To a person, they're all thrilled to be here. Think about the love, the fellowship, the shared faith, the encouragement that happens at lectureships. This is the first Mexican lectureship. This is a slide from Haven Miller's collection. Haven taught at ACC for a long time, taught languages, Spanish, English, French. And he also goes down and drives down in Monterey, Mexico, and preaches just about every summer, or most of the summer. And they get together and have a lectureship. So we have exported the concept of lectureships. Now it's international. We can talk about Pan American lectures, South American lectures. We can talk about the European lectureships. Um, Jerry, you want to talk about this? Uh, this is uh, 1949, the 7th Pepperdine Bible Lectures. And the featured speaker was Marshall Keeble. In this photo, you can see how short he was, but a booming voice. He's being welcomed on the, on the right there by the president, Hugh Tyner. Next to Hugh Tyner, silver right to the right, is E.W. McMillan, Brother Mac. And next to him is John Allen Hudson, the founder of the Old Paz Book Club. And on the end on the right is uh, uh, W.L. Uh, w. West. W. West, sorry. He, who leaves, he's the chairman of the Bible Department, but then he goes back to Harding and eventually starts the graduate school in Memphis. Moving to the left of uh, Marshall Keeble, I think that's A.R. Holton, the missionary to Korea, and then Dean Foyus, Earl Foyus, and the last two of left were also Bible teachers. Uh, just a glimpse of Pepperdine in the 1940s. Who were who the Tulsa? Tulsa. 728B, becoming pervasive, probably is due to the fact that that was the songbook that they 
Tulsa, I think in 77, 78. And so when you pulled into Tulsa, I don't think there was projection like we have. There was all these songbooks. When you turn to these songbooks, this was the Howard's Praying Hymnal, the new edition of Songs of the Church. And you sing out of it, and that's I think that's how 728B catches on. Because instantaneously, you have 20,000 people who now have that song in their mind. So that when I say 728B, 40 years later, we all mind and come along. <coughs> what a powerful thing that is. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, yes. Yes. This is the old uh, Baptist church in Fort Worth. Uh, this was J. Frank Norris's church. J. Frank Norris is an infamous fundamentalist Baptist debater, preacher, champion who meets Foy Wallace Jr. in debate. And here's the picture of the crowd of the debate. The point being is think about the common experiences that have shaped us. We couldn't not mention debates. So the Wallace and Morris debate was a large event. Not all of had this many people. Um, but think of the, the social factor here, seeing people, being in a crowd, and having your champion defend your cause. Uh, the place to, to see and to be seen. Um, interesting dynamic. We don't, you know, now we fight with each other anonymously over people. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be yeah. in the room. Yes. Here. This was in Fort Worth, Texas. 1934. It, who is uh, who was himself kind of a leader in the premillennial movement, dispensational movement? It in fact, in effect, said, "Okay, we have staked out our position now. We are non-premillennial. That's who we are in Churches of Christ, even though we still had a, a trajectory that was still premillennial, but they were being eased out and uh, marginalized. And this event helped marginalize them." Jerry. Uh, this is uh, Nashville. It's uh, December 1934. Look at the heavy coats on. These six men, I think, mostly have a connection to the Gospel Advocate. On the far left, that's S.H. Hall. And on the far right uh, is Leon McQuitty. The third man from the left, sort of tall man in a gray coat, that's uh, S.F. Morrow. That's the grandfather of uh, Norval Young, which means he's the great-grandfather of Sarah Young Jackson, our chancellor of the university right now. But uh, those are the six leaders in Nashville together. I don't know where I found that photo. I just thought it was interesting. But, but you think about the formative power of print journalism. They're outside the offices of the Quitty Printing in Nashville, Tennessee, the Gospel Advocate. The, the earlier picture, this was printed in some foundation. So if you think about the formative, what has formed us? Well, print journalism formed us in very significant ways. Again, like I said, now we talk to each other um, in different ways, but um, we also read, and we still read, 
this, I, this is Mrs. Laurie, Mrs. John Laurie. She's a reader in Australia. This is in a history book of, of disciples churches in Australia, published about 1903. It's got this wonderful, the whole book is chock full of photography. And this full page picture of this elderly sister reading. She's just quietly reading. Think about that dynamic of, of printing sermons and publishing journals and tracts. Uh, it's a great, it's a great picture. She's got a shelf of books. So, well, again, for bookish people, this is great. All right, let's talk about events, fellowship, shared life, ministry, mercy, service. This is dinner on the grounds. Who's ever had dinner on the grounds or had potluck after church? Think about that dynamic. This is J.W. Shepherd. He's standing with a coat on uh, right here. Like a good preacher should. Like a good preacher should. <laughs> this is the Foster Street Church having dinner on the ground in Nashville, Tennessee, about 1904-05. Looks kind of crowded to me. I don't know. I mean, and they've all got, everyone brought something. Grounds just full of jars and pickled beets and who knows what. So then here's a group of folks. This is a, a this is a before and after. This is this family walking into the front door of the Central Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee in the 1940s. Mac, explain the origins of the Central Church a little bit so they can get a picture this, here. The Central the Church was was a very intentional church plant designed to serve the poor and in what is now inner city downtown Nashville in the 1920s. From the beginning, from day one, they wanted to have someone at the building basically all day, six in the morning to about 11 or 12 at night, to receive people who came for food or for clothing. So in the Depression, in the 20s in Nashville, you have folks who come and they need flour because back then you made your own biscuits at home. They needed dry beans, they needed canned goods, they needed clothing. Benevolence in downtown Nashville today is, is quite different, but that was the means or the mode of, of doing benevolence. So you had folks who would walk out off the street needing something. So this woman has walked in with her children. Notice, uh, you, you, can, you can tell most clearly by looking at mama's shoes, because you know mama would be about so the kids can have better shoes. So the kids have better shoes than mama. Mama hardly has a decent pair of shoes on. Um, but look at the after picture. So this is them coming into the church off the sidewalk. Here they are coming out of the church, out onto the sidewalk. They've got nice clothes. Each one of them's got a bundle, a brown craft paper bundle, probably of clothes. Everyone's got to change clothes. They probably got some food. This was part of the church's documenting their a range of ministry. We wanted to show a before and after. So they have a before picture. And they had the same family after. So here's hungry folks. And if you weren't able to see the sign, it says Central Church of Christ right there by the door. What a great, a great snapshot. Again, we don't know their names. We'll never know their names. But we think about all the ministry that has happened in our churches since the beginning of where things like this happened. Where people who were hungry, they got fed. That has always been part of our story. That often happens under the radar. Rarely is it ever photographed, but it's there. It's part of being church, and so I thought we've got to have that. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Ira Norris, but this boy, this picture just exemplifies Ira Norris' energy. So you talk about the, the kinds of expansive ministries that happen in a lot of our churches, very specialized age-based ministries. Um, 
social service ministry to the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Madison in the 60s and 70s become a flagship idea, well for ideas of things to do for church. The whole church staff came out to Abilene lectures in one year and just did the whole thing and said, we're going to show you how we do it in Madison. And yeah. they did all of the Bible teachers' workshops themselves. And it was kind of a lab of how we do it in Madison. Well, you know, Norville Young had to go, well, I believe it was Norville, wasn't it, Jerry? Uh, this is your building, about church buildings. Is that, do I have that right? Uh, Norville Young, wasn't it, this is your building? Yes. Yeah. The church's building. Yes. And, and I think uh, that was about buildings, right? Yes. With, with our Nora, what you get is one of the first kind of church growth guys. We're going to show you how to grow a church. We're going to show you how to methods, the resources. <coughs> and you're going to be, you can become a big church like we are. And I think Madison was, would, you, would it be fair to say, Madison was kind of the first mega church in, uh, in Churches of yeah, Christ? Madison and Broadway are, in attendance numbers wise, yes. Yeah, attendance numbers. The kind of ministry that mega churches can do with a critical yeah. mass of people. You can have an entire ministry devoted to widows. You can have an entire ministry devoted to pick something. Right. A very diversified home Did health care, did uh, retirement homes, did children's homes. I mean, they had that kind of resources where you could do that. Here's a picture of the kids at Madison, I think in the BBS. Madison is, Ira is very interested in, in integration in the 60s and 70s. Uh, if, if memory serves, the, the, the first black couple was going to place membership at the Madison Church, and I think the leadership had a, had a discussion, and, and I think Ira said, if it ever comes down to it, of having this, you know, this, the Jones couple and the Smith couple, or having you as your preacher, if it comes down to it, um, I'll leave. That's how important it is to me that whoever wants to become a part of this congregation is welcome in this church. And if anyone has a problem with it, let's talk about this now and just get it out and get it over with so we can move forward and march. There's too much work to be done to hold our brothers and sisters at, at, at distance when they want to become part of our church. And so uh, it, locally, on the ground in Nashville, Madison is integrating uh, across you know, age ranges. Um, anyway, so there's a wonderful shot there. And then here's the women at Madison. I, I drew this from the well ideas at Madison Church Troubles, the real painful job. Things we do. Okay, here they are sewing. And you think, well, think about what has shaped our movement. Yes, big debates, big name preachers, Howard Pennington, big debates, national lives, great names, great big, quote unquote, important things. But you also think about the ministry that happens when the women get together and they do the work that needs to be done and they find out who's hungry, who's in the hospital, who fell and needs help at home, and they get things done at the local congregation. It's going to happen because of women like this getting around and keeping each other informed in, in just completely natural ways for keeping, making sure that they're keeping up with other people and getting things done. I could not have this one to just illustrate that dynamic of how we perform. Uh, and again, probably all of us have names in our heads of similar sisters who's doing work like this just kept the church running. <laughs> okay. This is BBS at Eastview Church in Nashville, Tennessee, about 1952, when they opened their building. Every seat is full. Can you see the song leader right here? 
And what do you think they're seeing? This little line of There you go. <laughs> All right, now again, who's going to be us and who has signed up? I think all of us have very fond memories of when we were children. There were people in church who loved us and taught us and did VBS, and we felt like that was a place where I can go and be welcome. Okay. Boy, that may be one of the most powerful pictures I've seen because you can look at those kids with the hats on. You know they've had a time of their life. And you just think about what, what the downstream impact of ministry like that would have been. Yeah, what I, what I remember are the adults sitting in the crowd making sure everybody's behaving themselves. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if you look at that, <laughs> all right, who remembers Joy Bus? Yeah. All right. Again, there's a shared experience. Hands across the country go up when I mention the Joy Bus. This is an ad for that microphone that would hang around your neck. Okay. I don't know if you wore one of those. Okay, this is from Jewel Miller's idea of a little booklet that he published. Uh, selling the voice booster. But the point is, there's a picture of, you know, this is, she, I, I think she's probably all about 14, right? And she's an emerging youth group. You know how it is. That the youth group recruited to get on a bus and sing and crowd control and all of that. Okay. This is in the Race Relations Workshop 1968 in Atlanta. Uh, there are leaders from white and black churches that have come together to talk about the race question. That's the language used in the sources of the time. How are we going to relate to each other? Okay. Well, part of the story of our coming together in events like lectureships was when we would raise questions like this and we would discuss questions like this. It sometimes happened in public events. This was a, more or less a private um, but this, this, the, do you recognize any of the people here? The John Allen Chalk was front row center. Um, Ryan Hogan. This is oh. Ryan Hogan is Jimmy, Jimmy Allen in the middle. Jimmy Allen. That's James Thompson. That's Bob Randolph. Next over and up is Ryan Hogan. Ryan Hogan right here. Yes, yes. Ryan Hogan is right there. Next to um, I think almost all of the presidents of the Christian colleges were there except Lake Corpus. I think that's right. So Jim Bill Mackin's here. Um, yes, Charles Mason is here. So these were, these were just a cross-section of thought leaders. Editors, publishers, college, university. Uh, this is 1968. Yes. I think Jim Bill, I think Jim Bill is right here in the back row. Let's talk about missions, just briefly. Here's J.A. McHale of Baptizing Willis. J.A. McHale may be a name familiar to you, perhaps not. He's, he's widely regarded as our first missionary, which is, in a sense, true if you think cross-cultural, international missions. Among churches in Christ. Among churches in Christ, sorry. I mean, the non-society votes. Okay. 
My man didn't think he shook the water. He'd been back from Australia by the time that Jay and Michaela goes to Japan. But we won't quibble. <laughs> I think there are others, like perhaps like Shepard, who, you know, Middle Tennessee to Australia was not quite as cross-cultural as Kentucky to Tokyo. But the point being is that Caleb widely held, um, and, and rightly held, as one of our pioneer missionaries. Here he is baptizing his daughter. It's just a great picture. A name we probably don't know and may never know is E.S. Jelly, J-E-L-L-E-Y. Here he is um, with, with his little mission in India. So you, again, it's hard not to kind of, kind of, the inertia of thinking of status and power and influence, mm -hmm. gravitating towards the big name preachers, the big name schools, the big name churches, as kind of representing us. It's hard to resist that, but think about the missionaries who's worked with impoverished folks in India whose names will never know who did not make, quote-unquote, the impact on the world that the world values and considers to be impactful. Here are folks who are naked and hungry and hurting and diseased and ill, uh, and Jelly goes and devotes his life to these mission efforts. It's, a, it's remarkable in the sense that we even have a photograph to document it. That's remarkable uh, because, again, as the way the world works, Folks like this go right through the cracks and they'll never even know what happened. But here we've got a photograph of Jelly. Here's Jelly and his wife. It's, again, it's just remarkable that we even have a photograph of him. I raise that to, to raise the point of missions happening uh, all over the place for a long time. A lot of that water we just never know has passed on through. Yes? This is in 1910s and 20s. This is Don Carlos James in his office in Louisville, Kentucky. Don Carlos was probably responsible for as much missionary promotion prior to the World War II as any person living. He tirelessly devoted his energy and time uh, and resources to promoting missionaries when he did not have an official function for missionary promotion such as the Board of Missions or the Board of Foreign Missions or the Office of Co-Mission. We had folks who were informed, and when they were informed and moved, they might give. And if they were not informed and they were not moved, then they would not give. And therefore, the missionaries would not be supported. Well, when you don't have a centralized agency, what do you have? Well, you have folks like Don Carlos James who steps up and starts a paper and tries to get the word out to anyone and everyone who will listen. Our missionaries are starving. They need food. They need clothes. They need uh, support. Please be aware of them. So there's Don Carlos in his in his study. Notice there's the big four on the wall. Let's think about the power of photography. Also, there's James A. Harding and Potter Bible yep. College yeah, right. over his desk, which is where he went to school. Which is where he went to school. Yeah. And so he's got photographs on the wall of people who moved him. And then he produces this portraiture, which you can also see right around the corner in uh, Lucy's office. Uh, the missionary portraiture. Here are the missionaries. 
Notice the difference. Notice the difference between this and living, that is, all men, right, in the in 19, early 1900s. Notice the, the diversity of women. I mean, there's lots of women in this picture. We were willing to send women as missionaries, but not to kind of practice the similar sort of stuff here in the States. The mission field needed, and, and these women, they were productive, and they were courageous, and, and they were uh, <coughs> loving toward the, the people that they were serving. Just amazing stories of women. We've had a couple of books here recently published about some of these women who were on the mission field. And uh, James designed this portraiture. I want you to get this portraiture and hang it up in your church so that when you come and go to church and you see these people, they will have, the children of your church will have a face to put in the name so when you pray for Brother McCaleb, you can see his face. I remember as a child mm -hmm. in the Hendersonville Church of Christ in probably 79 or 80, seeing a picture of the well that Brother Moses Akanudo was trying to drill for water in Africa because of I forget her name, but I can see her face. Our Sunday school teacher showed us this picture of our missionary. And we all gave some you know, whatever money that you know, four or five-year-old kids would give so that they could have water to drink. Okay, well, James gives this portraiture so that you can take it to church and as you tell stories about the This next picture is of the interior of the Joseph Avenue Church in Nashville, Tennessee, standing from the front, looking towards the back. What do you see? But there's a James missionary portraiture right there in the back. What a wonderful, just perfect picture. This is from pre-war. I think this is from the late 30s. Um, by the way, this was a pre-millennial church, very much in that work of John Carlos James and all very heavily mission-minded. Not to say that those were not, but very heavily mission-minded. Uh, and there's a picture of the portrait. Along with the covered table. Along with the covered table. <laughs> In uh, 1928, George Pepperdine took his mother around the world. So here's George in the middle. Here's his mother. They're meeting with all of our missionaries, not all of them, in Japan. And on their lap is Ramona Fox, who will grow up to marry Kenny Hahn. And we have the Hahn uh, dining room here on campus. Kenny was supervisor of Los Angeles for about 40 years. And uh, so there's, you know, McCabe is back here. It's just a fascinating combination of all the people that Pepperdine is interested in. I don't know whose house this is, but John Mark said he thinks it's Michaela's house. Maybe. I was at that house too, but this is a back side view. By the way, this photo is hanging next door in the Heritage Center. If you want to look at it a little Michaela's house would be a likely suspect because, in a sense, he's the kind of the grandfather and the father figure for the missionaries. And so it would be a likely meeting place. Notice there's a there's a child on the oh, one comment you had on the last picture and I, I Dr. Phil Slate um, oh yes commented when I was at ACU studying missions that I believe it was McCaleb when he 
initially went over and ordered a house from Sears Roebuck and had it shipped and then assembled it. And I have never seen a picture, but this may be that house. Yeah, there, there are pictures available of that house, and it's still standing. Um, at least last time I was in Tokyo, and it's still standing. Now, it, it looks, it stands out like a sore thumb. It looks like nothing else in the city in terms of, uh, it is a Western-style house, uh, you know, and you can tell it's not culturally accommodative. You know, it is, it, it is a Western house, and that's, and that's why I think it might be his house because it, it reflects that kind of um, backdrop. But I don't really know for sure. Can you go back to that picture? You can see that Benson is, is in there somewhere. Yes. I don't know where he is. Uh, but uh, what I want to say was is that there is a, a guy from New Zealand that the sheriff that was a missionary in uh, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. There's Short there who was a missionary in um, uh, Rhodesia. He ended up to be in the non-institutional movement. Uh, and then there's Scott there, one of the first missionaries too, and that's Denominator. All these guys are Denominator Farm. Not, 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 uh, not sure. And uh, there was, uh, it was Browns, I think. Yes. Was, and they were yes. all Denominator. Mm -hmm. And they all had these different, uh, Scott was a one cut and died at one cut in 1953. So, um, they were all at the same place. They never divided. They fought like cats and dogs sometimes, but they never divided. And so, Free Millennials, one cup, non institutional, and, uh, 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 and uh, a, New, a New Zealand guy with a very strict person. So, it's a, it's a, that's kind of an interesting thing about some of our missionaries. They, they wouldn't divide, they wouldn't have disagreements. Sometimes wouldn't talk for a month or so. They just wanted to mention Thank you. That's great. There you go. Uh, this photo is about 1928. Look at the back row EA Rhodes and OD Bixler, and then there's Jay and Caleb with a gray suit. Next to him is uh, Herman Fox, and then Barney Moorhead, and then Harry Fox Sr. So next to Michaela there, that's Herman Fox. Now go straight down below him, and there's his wife holding one of their children. Uh, that's uh, Sarah Fox. And then look at the second row on the far left. That's Hattie Lee Yui in Japan. And uh, right below her is, <coughs> straight below her is Pauline Fox, wife of Harry Roberts. And the third one there, I don't know the Asian one between them, the third one is uh, Lily Seifert. And then uh, uh, after the Fox woman, Claire, uh, at the end of the road is Claire, uh, Claire Kennedy. And, uh, and the children at the bottom, seven of them are foxes, and two of them are fixed fixers. I think that's 1928. This photo here is the Abilene Christian College Bible Lectureship, February of uh, 1935. And uh, I forgot who. Uh, look on the uh, uh, back row on the far left is J. Emmett Wainwright. 
these are all missionaries or people who are training to be missionaries. I don't remember Wainwright going to the mission field, but next to him, the tall guy, is Otis Gatewood. So here's Gatewood in 35, and he goes and he graduates from Pepperdine with his master's, and then he goes to Germany and writes the book, Preaching in the Footsteps of Hitler. And next to Otis Gatewood is Lloyd Smith, and the two guys in the middle R.S. Bell and Howard Shook, and then the little guy next to Shook is J.D. Merritt. There's been Merritt families in Africa as long as I remember. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple there. Roy Merritt's still there. Uh, there's Great a couple missionary. named Merritt. Great missionary. I, I, there's a couple named Merritt who went on my hymns tour about 2005 or later, and they liked it and went with me again. Next to Merritt is um, uh, Hedy Lee Ewing. Now, I don't know the guy next to Hedy Lee, but then the last one in that top row is Don Hopaway, and that Hockaday, and uh, George Benson married his daughter. Now, you come down to the bottom row, and uh, I'll skip through the first three. That fourth guy is Harry Robert Fox. This is 1835, before he's going to enroll at Pepperdine in 37. And, uh, and then there's a couple there that I don't know. Then the next one, the third to the right, is George Benson. And then Barney Moorhead is, I don't know the one next to Benson. The last one is Barney Moorhead. Anyway, these were missionaries or people training for missions at Abilene. What building are they standing in front of? That's, that's soon. Yeah, the other Sorry, that administration. Well, we only had two generals in the Civil War, and they fought on opposite sides. They were both great preachers, great men. On the left is R.M. Deneau, Richard Montgomery Deneau. I wrote my master's thesis on the Deneau family. On the right is James Abram Garfield. I wrote my PhD dissertation at the University of California in Garfield. What I wanted to write in my PhD was a dual biography. They wouldn't let me do it. But anyway, these are the two generals. It shows you the sadness of the Civil War. They came within one day of trying to kill each other. And yet, if they had known each other, they would have loved each other. <laughs> A lot in common. <laughs> this is Garfield's. Uh, team of, you know, Garfield in front of a tent during the war with his four lieutenants or whatever. And this is Company A in Garfield's battalion. They were all members of the Church of Christ from Hiram, wow. down to Hiram College, and uh, Garfield know where they, he knew where they lived, he knew how to persuade their parents to let your boy go with the end of the war, and that's Company A. This one was, uh, I'll admit, I was just looking for a laugh here. That's, uh, that's Robert uh, Fox in the back and his wife. 
and their seven children. And this is 1937 or 38. You know, he's coming to study at uh, Pepperdine. And he takes a class from young, normal young, who is not married, and the class is called Courtship and Marriage. <laughs> Barry Robert with his wife and seven children knew a little bit more about than normal about courtship and marriage. Uh, that's why I raised my two today. That's G.C. Brewer in the center. Just to remind you, Brewer was a distinguished Grover Cleveland Brewer. With his hat. That's obviously Los Angeles. But that's Tommy Phillips on the left. And uh, I know the man on the right is skipping my mind. But this is in the 19, I think this is 36. Brewer, I threw Brewer. that in because this is T.B. Larimore before he becomes famous. He's maybe. He could be 20, he's born in 1843. This could be 63, maybe he's 19. Though that big head of hair, this is before he built his school in Alabama. What's the name of the school? Little Louder? Marshall. By the way, you, uh, I thought we were gonna close with Selma, but you had a slide later of children. I'd rather close with Selmer, so why don't you do the last slide? So I wasn't sure what that one was. How many, how many do you have left? That, that was the Just, Well, well the one there was some children at the end. Um, no? That's the big. No? Okay. That's, yeah, that's the BBM. Oh, okay. Go back to Selmer. We'll close with the. This is David Lipscomb's son, the young son who died. And uh, this uh, gives all the data and so on. But do we have the quote now from David Lipscomb? Lipscomb was so sorry to lose his little boy. And he ends by saying, I'll just have to work hard and try to forget. And then he says, I hoped to raise him up to work for the Lord. I shall have to work all the harder myself. I thought it was a good finish to the day of looking at our ancestors, and uh, they were sinners saved by grace. They made a lot of mistakes. They were slow to uh, recognize the diversity around them. But uh, the three colleges of David Lipscomb, James Harding, George Pepperdine, these were good men. And I'm proud we have schools named for them. And uh, Lipscomb losing Zellner, but saying, I'm just going to have to work a little harder. I'll ask John Mark and uh, Mac to have a last word, and then we'll thank all of you for coming. We're actually a little early. We act like 4.15. I've got about 4 o'clock. John Mark, final word of Mac. Yeah, this is a touching picture. Because it's not anywhere obvious. You have to go find this, this spot out in the... It's in the Zellner graveyard, but it's not really marked off or anything in, in these days. But Zellner was their only child. They never had another child. Died at eight months. And he's a, he is a, a casualty of the Civil War, basically. Because he was born uh, at the time when the Union Army occupied uh, Nashville. 
and the battle lines are between Nashville and Columbia. Columbia, yeah, Columbia, yeah. And um, so when he died, they crossed the battle lines to bury him. But he died because there was no medical uh, help available. And he died basically of diarrhea. And he had no medical attention because all the doctors were tied up with, with the war itself. If he had lived in a different time, he probably would have survived. At least that was what was thought. But they never had another child. And Lipscomb was often, um, it was said that whenever his Zellner's name was mentioned, which Zellner is the family name of his wife, um, so they named their son Zellner after the family name. And whenever his name was mentioned, Lipscomb would always tear up. Yeah, there's one story, someone sat next to him on the front row, he's about to get up and preach, and he's remembering Zellner, and tears are coming down his eyes, and this is one of the times he says, you know, I had to work all that much harder because I wanted him to be God. And I think of that, that story really touches me because I've lost a son. We named him Joshua because we thought he would be a leader in God's people. And that kind of moment puts, um, puts kind of not only a face, but a, but a sympathy and empathy, a sense of heart and emotion that we can see from some of these pictures. We see the emotion in some of these pictures. And remember that, that these are real people. They had real lives. They had real struggles. Um, and I think it's helpful for us to remember them just so that we are shaped by them one more time in a more uh, direct way. Because we've been shaped by them in indirect ways all our lives, those of us who have been in Churches of Christ. Uh, I don't have anything very different to, to say okay. to that, but uh, you, again, you, you, you can picture in your mind people who talk to you. Someone talked them, someone talked them, and back and back and back. And so and you can see these pictures on the wall, so to speak. Um, so photographs in our, in our family parlor. Uh, each one of them has something that they brought to us in some way. Uh, I can look at these faces and look at these stories and I can see, um, well, I don't think it's being too sentimental, but I can see uh, their impact. I can, I can hear their voices in a sense. Uh, I have received so much good uh, from all the people who have taught me and then you think about what they received from their teachers. Well, where that makes me want to go so when I teach on this and speak on this, where I'm thinking is, okay, so now where do we go forward? Uh, what, what type of, you, know, you can look at Joy Bus Ministries and you can look at Quilting Ministries and you can look at all of these pictures and you can think, okay, at home, on the ground, at church, what do we do? Uh, you think about the DBSs that we do. Think about the classes that we teach. You think about the leadership development that we do within our own congregation or the pastoral ministry that happens Every day of the week, uh, the emails that are going back and forth, making sure that people who are hungry get food, people who can't have a light bill, a light bill, and someone who's off their meds gets to drive to the drugstore. All of the things that happen in the life of the church, well, all of that goes forward. But it, it, in, in this case, it's very helpful, I think, to think how that goes forward from a well or a reservoir of what we receive. That's just really kind of special, I think.
If you have time, go next door to the mahogany room here to sit and look at the photos and the captions on the wall. We haven't talked a lot about Sarah Andrews today. That's a great photo and caption. And I think you would just enjoy a walk around that mahogany room to look at the pictures. And uh, the three of us will put this slide together. We thank you for coming and spending two hours. Have a good day.